Today we continue our series in the book of Genesis, particularly Genesis chapters 1 to 11. So Genesis can be broken down into two sections. The first section is chapters 1 to 11, and you can call that basically the history of everything up until Abraham. And then Genesis 12 to 50 deals with the history of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But we're going to leave that for another time. Uh, This series, which takes us through the beginning of March, just covers chapters 1 to 11. So today we finish off Genesis chapter 3. So I invite you to go ahead and turn there with me now if you haven't already. The big idea from verses 8 to 24, really the whole entire chapter 3, is through man, sin and death came into the world. Through man, sin and death came into the world. And through God, the world is rescued from sin and death. So that's through man, sin and death came into the world. And through God, the world is rescued from sin and death. Um, And if you're joining us for the first time, and maybe you missed last week's sermon... You join us at this moment where we deal with something called the fall of man. A hugely important issue if we are to understand the gospel. And if we get this wrong, so Genesis chapter 3, if we misunderstand this, we actually fail to understand and grasp what truly happens in Jesus Christ. So if you get this wrong, the whole thing just kind of unfolds. So, and I hope you picked that up as David read from Romans chapter 5. Let me repeat that again, verse 18. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So there what he's talking about, that one trespass, he's talking about Adam in the garden. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that is Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So there Paul, he holds out and compares and contrasts these two men. The first Adam, and then as scripture says, Jesus is the last Adam, the greater Adam, the second Adam. And we go ahead and we see in the rest of the chapter that what Adam did... Christ the King, the God-man, undoes to the praise of God's glory. So let me just summarize Genesis so far, chapters 1 to chapter 3, verse 7. So we read here that, that God creates everything. He creates us, and we are created to be in perfect fellowship with Him. And this was, for a time, the perfect relationship. I mean, can you guys imagine being in a place relating to your God and relating to other people where there is no sin. Perfect trust. Zero fear. Complete love. And just as God by his grace created them, so he sustained them, right? He gave them everything they could ever want. And he says, every tree that I have ever made, all of its fruit is for you. All the vegetation of the world is for you. I give you everything. Just as I create you, so I sustain you. But, he says, do not eat from this one tree. And that command there, that prohibition is really God's call to discipleship. He calls Adam and Eve to follow him and to listen to him. Not only be under him as he is sovereign, but also genuinely love him. 
question is, would they choose to obey or would they choose to rebel? Would they choose God's way or would they choose their own way? Would they choose God's will or would they choose their own will? And then last week you all looked at Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 and you saw there that Satan twists God's word and he tempts Adam and Eve. And he says, did God actually say? And then of course Adam and Eve, they give in to this disobedience and they redefine God's boundaries and in so doing they become God's unto themselves knowing or determining them for themselves what is good and evil so before 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 they sinned they knew good and evil they had a capacity to receive god's command and to know what is right and what is wrong right they know good and evil but after the fall after they sin they come to know sin in a very different way so imagine a cancer doctor for example the cancer doctor knows cancer right I mean, he gives his life to studying cancer. You got to go to med school, then you got your residency, and then you got your postdoctoral fellowship. You give yourself to studying do- uh, cancer if you're an oncologist. But let's say that that cancer doctor actually gets cancer. Soon, all of a sudden, he knows it in a very different way. He knows it experientially. And this intimate knowledge of wrongdoing, this evil, this sin, and the guilt that comes with it is summarized there. In nakedness. This is the language of Genesis 3, verse 7. Look there. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened. Of course, their eyes were already open. They were open, so they grasped after the tree. They saw what was good. Their eyes, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves, for themselves, loincloths. So this here is the initial conflict. That sends us towards the rest of Genesis chapter 3. And in fact, this is the the initial conflict that sends us into the rest of scripture. And it's something that Genesis 3, 8 verse on to the end, uh, God there takes initiative to solve the problem. Man has sinned. Man has fallen. He understands evil. He knows good from evil experientially. And God then comes to his aid. It raises questions, okay? So now that man has rebelled, now that they have rejected their creator and their sustainer, now that man has gone against God's law, what would they do? And what will God do? So if you were in their shoes, what would you do? Let's see what Adam does. Look there in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. (laughs) So what do they do? They hide. And they hide at the sound of the Lord. So, okay, um, there were times when my parents would leave me and my brother alone. And, uh, of course, they would say something like, you know, make sure you do all your homework um, and no watching TV. And right when they would leave, of course, me and my brother would go and turn on the television. And we would watch the television all the way up until the very last moment that we could before they came home. And what would take us off, um, or what would signify to us that they are now home and that we then should change our ways, is we would hear the garage door opening. That was our sign. When the garage door opens, you know, we make this mad dash to go and pretend and fake innocence. So that they, when, when they would come home, they would find us doing our homework. 
but really all the while we were not. We were disobeying them. And so I understand what it's like for Adam and Eve to hide at the sound of the Lord. You know, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, you might, let's, let's say you understand this just to be a, a great piece of um, literary masterpiece, which it is. I encourage you and I believe that it is so much more than that, but let's just assume that that's what you think. It is amazing, you know, given how long ago this was written. Um, it's amazing the fact that we actually identify here with these people a lot more than we realize. Right, this is a different culture than the one that we live in, a very different time, written by a different author uh, who has a different mentality. But yet, there is something that connects us here. There's an uncanny similarity between us, and if you understand this is just a great literary masterpiece, then you might understand this to be, let's say, our fictional forebears. I understand, and Christians who believe the word, they understand this to be our literal, historical forebears. There's a great uncanny similarity between us and them. So you can look at children, for example, and you see this totally. So if you guys have ever babysat children, or if you have children yourselves, Adam and Eve here resemble those little munchkins okay, that you guys have in your minds. I mean, have you guys ever babysat a three-year-old, for example? And let's say that three-year-old grabs a hold of something that they know they shouldn't. Candy, for example. And they know that mom and dad would not want them to have that thing. And so, and so in their cleverness, right, they then lay out all the different options of what they can do to get away with, with whatever it is that they're doing. And they come up with basically three. And this, this comes from my own uh, experience and my own observation of children. What, where do they hide, right? Number one, they hide under the kitchen table. Of course, no one is ever in the kitchen. And certainly mom is never going to find me or see my little tiny feet under there. Or in their cleverness, they go to option number two, the corner. Surrounded by 90 degrees of wall, and for some reason, they forget that actually the corner draws mom and dad's attention directly to them as they sit there surrounded by this 90 degree wall, um, hidden from plain sight. And then you've got the third option, what I think is the most comedic. Um, this is the turnaround method. <laughs> this one says, if I just turn around... And never look at mom and dad. They will never know something is wrong. They'll never suspect anything. And it's interesting, if you know yourself well enough, you might not be hiding under tables, but you might be hiding underneath your resume, underneath the clothes that you put on. And perhaps you avoid and you hide by running away from friends. Because they know they might ask you some difficult questions. Or perhaps you even hide behind half-baked confessions. Maybe it's your practice to have accountability. But even in the middle of accountability, you know, you can still hide behind your supposed confessions. I mean, why do people hide? It's because we want to get away with something, right? We want to get away with something. We want to get away with disobedience. But not only that, we also want to get away from something. And here they want to get away from the accountability that comes from God himself. This is why the scripture says that they hid from the presence of God. And it's amazing how sin really just screws up the relationship that man has between him and God. 
right? That, that's, that's the nature of hiding. So for, for some reason, and we really ought to mourn here in this process, even though Genesis 3 just moves at a really fast clip, we really ought to mourn. I mean, for some reason, they go from God here is creating them and sustaining them, giving them everything, orchard upon orchard of fruit trees for their benefit. And for some reason, they now feel like they need to hide from the presence of God. I mean, what has happened in their mind? God hasn't changed, right? God is still the God who creates and sustains and provides and loves, directs, guides, comforts. But for some reason in their head, they're so twisted there that they now feel the need to hide. And we really, it's, it's like we observe Satan sort of shutting down the capacities of man. It's almost like their eyes become darkened in the sin. Their brains become darkened in the sin. Their, 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 their appendages, where once would be used to cultivate the land, to God's glory around them, they then become darkened, tainted by sin. So we looked in Genesis 2 about what it means for man to be made in God's image, right? Relational capacities. Creative capacities, moral capacities, all of them given to God, given to man by God to reflect and image God to the world, to one another. But here Satan, the deceiver, brings a slow death to these faculties. Now we know that the image of God can never be taken or is never entirely gone, is never entirely lost. But here we see that it is certainly perverted. And that's what explains Adam, Adam's behavior here. I mean, you think about relational capacities, right? God had given Adam relational capacities. He designed Adam to be in communion with God, to trust him, to love him, and live underneath his commands. So, and he does so, you know, God speaks to him. That's, that's divine self-revelation. But Satan goes right after that. And it reflects how crucial God's word is and a right interpretation of it and how it undergirds the Christian life. Because Satan himself is going directly after that. His number one attack is to get God's people to doubt his word and to doubt his character. So there's like strangling off Adam and Eve's God-given discernment to see God as good and loving and effusive in his love. Now, after the fall, God is stingy. Out of all the orchards, in, in, out of all the trees that lay in the orchards, did God really say, this one particular one, you should not eat? He's, he's miserly. He's unloving. And he does not have your best interest in mind. And Satan shuts that down. Take creative capacity, for example, right? He's given the ability, Adam is given the ability to till the land. To actually contribute to all of the goodness around it. So that it would just continue bearing fruit and bearing fruit. He's supposed to work. He's supposed to tend to the trees, right? So that they might bear fruit. And help them. But what? But it's interesting here. The provision of God. Becomes a shield from God. God provides man with all of the fruit. All of this vegetation. And Adam somehow sees it. As now a tool to use to evade God. He's, he's, he's messing up here big time. Sin is shutting down all of these capacities. The relationship to God is messed up. The relationship to God is messed up. And the relationship to the ground, therefore, 
as well is messed up. And those two things, the sin there darkens those two things in Adam's mind and in his heart. And we also see what, what else is darkened as we continue on. Um, but let's move to verses 9 to 13 as we just walk through this narrative, this story, this historical story. And we see not only does man hide physically, but he also hides morally. Look there in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? I mean, God knows what he's done, right? God knows what Adam's done. But he asks him, What or where are you? And his answer, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I mean, there's so many fascinating things about this answer that adam gives here i mean first you see the reason that adam gives for his hiding because i was naked now god knows what adam has done and so adam answers in a way that evades the sin right that evades the fact that he went against god's law Uh, and he almost gets it right because he he is confessing to some degree it's like a half-baked confession he could have and should have said I was afraid because I disobeyed you. I sinned against you and I'm guilty before you. But based on this half-baked confession, his guilt never finds its reference to God. He just simply says, I was naked and I hid. But none of that actually gets to the, the reason, the actual reason for what he did or what he did wrong in the first place. Instead, he says, I was afraid I was naked and I hid myself. It's hard not to see Adam's self-absorption here in his answer. I mean, we understand what it's like here to be consumed by guilt and to fear. To be so afraid and be so ruled by guilt, we sort of self-implode and we look inward. We become myopic looking at ourselves. Now, had Adam understood who God was completely, he would have ran to God, right? Because he knows that God is his creator sustainer provider who loves him who's gracious kind merciful but yet he seems really consumed with what he has done in a very self-absorbed way look at 11 who told you that you were naked have you eaten of the tree of which i commanded you not to eat he says have you eaten of the tree of which i commanded you not to eat and, and God here is drawing out a confession from Adam, right? And Adam, though, he's, he's, he's dodging it. He's dodging it. First he hides, and then he says, gives this half-baked confession. But then here, God, you know, he's just throwing him a softball. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate so we're supposed to think, no, Adam, you're not again. He hid the first time. That's number one. He gives a shady answer when God asks him where he is. And then now, number three, he's still trying to dodge God. But this time, he uses his wife to evade God. You know, if you remember God, he wanted Adam to make sure that he knew of his need, right? He brought all the animals before him, paraded them before him, and he was just naming them. And then it says, but there was no helper suitable for Adam. So Adam knows his need for woman. Beautiful gift in woman. God's provision to him once again in woman. And here in an instant, he throws her under the bus. And he is supposed to be, he's responsible, right, for the whole thing. 
So he blames her. Talk about strangling the image of God. Great gifts of relationship where he's supposed to love these people that God has placed in his life here. This is no gift of God. She is a curse. She is a curse, this woman. And all of that blame there, see that all that blame there is pushed off of him. But did you also notice that he deflects blame onto God? I mean, his very creator, sustainer, provider. The woman whom you gave to be with me. This is your plan, right? So if you recall back in Genesis 2, who was it that determined that it was not good that man should be alone? It wasn't Adam. It was God. God determined that it was not good for man to be alone. And so he gives, so he blesses Adam with Eve. And here in this moment here, he's shoving that all back into God's face. The woman that you gave to be with me. For some reason, you know, before the fall, he sees a woman as a beautiful blessing. This is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. She shall be called woman. Blessing. And there he cares for her. He loves her. But here, this is a very different understanding of this woman. And so we're left looking at Adam here in his hiding, in his self-justification, in his dodging of God's questions, in his making of excuses. There is no leadership. But... Certainly, there is abdication or the giving up of responsibility. And he was, in fact, the one who was with her in the garden, it says in Genesis chapter 2. He was supposed to lead, and that's why God then calls him to account first. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Now, without doubt, God is calling Adam to account first. Adam is to lead. Uh, He is ultimately held responsible as the husband. But we have to acknowledge here that Eve really messed up. I mean, she was supposed to be the help meet towards Adam, right? But here in Genesis chapter 3, she is enticing her husband to join into sin with her. But naturally, I mean, look how she, look how she, uh, look what she does. Look how she answers God's question. She has Adam as her example, Good job, Adam. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I mean, everyone here is blaming everybody else. Adam sort of points the finger to Eve. Eve points the finger to Satan. Everyone is blaming everyone else and no one is taking responsibility. Sounds like we're talking about politicians, doesn't it? I mean, you, we can just think of what's going on with Chris Christie, New Jersey and the bridge fiasco. But it certainly doesn't only happen amongst politicians, does it? It happens amongst us, too. We obscure the truth as well, and we hide. I mean, so so if you guys have ever got pulled over for a speeding ticket, what are you tempted to do? Just tempted, maybe. Tempted to do when cops pull you over for running that red light. I got 10 speeding tickets in the first 10 years of my driving career. (laughs) And I have to admit that every single one of those, I wanted so badly to get out of what what happened, what I did. By God's grace, I never obscured the truth. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I don't commend myself (laughs) as an example. But uh, on one Sunday morning, I was driving to go to a worship team practice. And I was speeding up the 57 freeway. And uh, I saw in my rearview mirror that there was, uh, uh, you know, there's barely any, any uh, cars, you know, driving at like 730 on Sunday morning. 
And I saw this car in my rearview mirror from very far away, and it was going very fast, much faster than I was going. Uh, and I knew that's a policeman, and I'm in trouble. Uh, and, you know, the cop pulled me over, and, uh, you know, we pulled off to the side, and he said, you know, license, registration, etc. He said, what? let me ask you a question. Why are you going so fast? And he was a really kind guy. And I wanted so badly to lie because I knew I was going to church. Um, yeah, see the irony in there. Um, and I said, I'm going to church. And he said, he said, son, you keep on going that speed, you're going to see Jesus a lot sooner. <laughs> but even in the moment, right, I wanted to get out of the ticket, which ended up costing me like over $300. Uh, including the traffic school and whatnot. And I even wanted to give him a, a, a better reason for why I was speeding, as if there is one, or it could be one, than, you know, driving to church um, and speeding there to get to a worship team practice. I mean, that is sin. And I'm a believer. So if you're visiting with us today, we don't, Christians don't claim to be perfect. We've, we very much know temptation. And the temp- what temptation looks like is we actually want to obscure the truth, just like Satan. And in those moments, we certainly look more like Satan in our lives. We look a lot more like Satan than like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? We're walking in the same pattern that Satan did when we actually obscure the truth. I mean, the same stuff that was in Adam and Eve is in us still. The same stuff. And we look more like Satan than we do like God in those particular moments. But notice here how God deals with Adam and Eve's sin. Right? This is a great offense. Adam is turning away from his creator, sustainer, going against his law, challenging his, his character, doubting his word, who he is. But look at what God does. I mean, there isn't, this isn't immediate destruction. Right, just let that sink in. Imagine if there was immediate destruction. What, how might that affect the way that we relate, we relate to one another and how we relate to the world and what, what might be good and righteous and kind? I mean, what kind of definition of patience might there be if God immediately, if he sent out his little insect drones to determine the very heart's thoughts of Adam and Eve and then destroyed them and squashed them, how would we define patience? But in all of Adam and Eve's rebellion and childishness, God remains so patient, doesn't he? He draws near to them. But not only that, he asks them questions to elicit, to draw out a confession. Where are you? God already knows where they are. Who told you? What have you done? You see how God seems to be so patiently drawing them out He draws them out of hiding by finding them. He draws them out of moral hiding by asking them questions. And questions that Adam and Eve, uh, they seem to want to evade. And God's response is so full of grace, isn't it? To Adam and Eve's rebellion. I mean, how many ways could God God have responded to Adam, who now questions the character of God, who sins against God, yet God pursues them? God knows where Adam is. God knows what he had done. And here God is seen to encourage Adam towards confession. Right? He's very much for him. He's he's for their confession. He's for their honesty. He's for their obedience. He's for their discipleship. 
even though God is the offended party. In the midst of all of that, God is still for them, and they don't know. So, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, know that this is who the God of the Bible is. A God who draws near to his people. A God who is full of grace. And this is one reason that we as Christians run to Christ in confession of sin. I mean, there's a common notion today that we as Christians worship God of the pagan religions. As if, as if uh, they would worship their God. You know, he's a God who needs to be pacified. Or else he's going to fly off the handle and respond in such a way where all we receive is sort of the wrath that we might have received when we're growing up as children. And our parents fly off the handle. Or our authorities, our bosses fly off the handle. And so we need to pacify. We need to make sure that we have everything in order. We have to do enough good works. Give to the Salvation Army that stands out on Kalima and... Azusa, sacrifices, earn enough good grace, look appear to be a certain way before these authorities so that they might be pacified in all of their wrath and uncontrollable anger. But if you look at Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, is this a God who struggles with anger management? Is, or is this a God who is patient? Who pursues his people, who encourages confession, and desires honesty. And we as a church community, we ought to be displaying this glory of God, this patient God, this loving God, uh, in all sorts of ways. As we run to God freely confessing our sin. And that's why we do this, let's say, for example, in our service. Um, So, for example, we prayed a prayer of confession. Now today, that might be construed as, oh, this is certainly not the joyful church. This is a church, though, who desires us to feel bad. This is a church that that promotes low self-esteem. A church that isn't uplifting. And if that's what you think, that's really too bad, because that is not the God of the Bible. Confessing sins here doesn't threaten our desire to live joyful lives. Not at all. Acknowledging sin doesn't threaten our ability to live joyful lives. In fact, evidence of our joy-filled life is that we confess our sins. In that we draw near to God, a God who's not going to destroy his people. But a God who welcomes those who acknowledge, yes, we have in fact sinned against you. I mean, can you imagine that God, the offended party continues to pursue sinners and asks rebels to lay down their arms, asks sinners to confess their sin and actually draw near to him. And when we get this understanding of confession right, the fact that God is always for us in Jesus Christ, that he's for our obedience and our righteousness and our holiness, that he's with us with great patience and care and gentleness, does not our confession going to God just freely, openly, acknowledging who we are. Doesn't that just affirm the rock-solid relationship that we have with Jesus? That we are broken people, and God invites those people to Him so that He then would go on and heal them. Thank God that God is a God who calls rebels to lay down their arms 
who call sinners to confess their sins and lay them down before the cross of Jesus Christ where they can be adequately dealt with. No hiding is going to cover your sin. No twisting of the truth will adequately deal with your sin and your very nature. But when God calls us to lay down our sins before Christ, we see that there is salvation. Interestingly enough, there is salvation and there is judgment. In fact, there is salvation in the midst of judgment. So when we look back now and we're looking back all the way 2,000 years ago to the cross of Christ, we see salvation through judgment. We see God's kindness, his love, his compassion, him being with us because he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die on the cross for sins. But then in the dying of sins, we also see God's judgment. As he takes the sins that we committed and the wrath that we deserve and he lays them not on us, but on his son. Who freely, freely and joyfully went to the cross so that we would know forgiveness and reconciliation. We see the salvation and judgment not only as we look to the cross, but even as we look further back here. Genesis 3. Look there. You see that? God also judges we see that God judges Satan. I'll go ahead and read uh, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Satan may have won for a moment by drawing Adam and Eve into sin, but at, at this point in time when God judges them, Satan leaves a defeated opponent. That's why he's left writhing on his belly and licking and eating the dust of the ground all the days of his life. It's important to note that in Hebrew culture, the dust was associated with dirty things. Uh, that might be common sense to you, but imagine where there isn't any plumbing. Well, so much more the dirt and the dust, the roads that we walk on, would really be associated with refuse. It's why the act of, let's say, washing feet is so significant. It really says, I basically am coming under you and serving you, cleaning off the filth of your, your feet. But not only that, eating dirt and dust was a sentence of defeated warriors. So licking the dust signified a warrior's total defeat. And that's exactly what God has in mind. Satan's ultimate defeat. Here in Genesis chapter 3, look there in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So where once Satan and Adam and Eve were compatriots and comrades against the kingdom of God and God's command. Now God says you will be enemies. Enmity will be will characterize your relationship there. And this enemy, this enmity would escalate. It would so escalate that it would lead to this great battle where one from the woman's womb, so the seed of the woman, would crush the head of a serpent, but not without injury. So here it says that the victor would actually suffer a great blow. You, he says to the serpent, shall bruise his heel as he crushes your head. This is deliverance here. And it's deliverance given through judgment. This is a promise that would forever be ingrained on the minds of God's people, right? Adam and Eve, they're thinking, okay, there's going to be a seed that's going to come from my womb. And then, of course, Cain comes along, right? 
And what do they name him? They name him Cain, which means here he is. Here is he, or I have gotten this one. And so in their minds, they're always thinking, is this one going to be the one to deliver us, to undo what Adam did? And of course, we know what happened to Cain, and we're going to look at that next week. But for now, we know that this promise in Genesis 3.15 finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through his weakness and through his death on the cross and then also in his resurrection from the grave but he triumphs over evil he destroys death sin and the devil through the cross and then god moves to judge eve go ahead and look there verse 16 to the woman he said i will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain shall bring you shall bring forth children your desire, sh- your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So Adam and Eve, they were supposed to fill the world. They were supposed to multiply. But in this judgment, the very act of childbearing or filling the world or multiplying would be fi- filled with pain or painful toil. This would be work, work that would cause pain. And then he says that your desire shall be for your husband. So she was supposed to be in the marriage relationship, right? But it'll take on a very different characteristic after the fall of man. One commentator noted in this marriage relationship, control would be replaced by freedom. Coercion would be replaced by persuasion. Or sorry, it says control would then replace freedom. Coercion would replace persuasion. Division would replace multiplication. So though her desire would be to dominate him, ironically, man then would go and dominate her in his sin. So before man was to love and man was to lead, after the fall, man now lords and dominates over his wife. And then, of course, we have the weightiest curse or judgment. Look there in verses 17 to 19. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So there, there's painful toil as well. Just as the woman was supposed to experience the painful toil and childbearing in her realm. So Adam is also in his realm to experience painful toil. Cursed is the ground. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field in his own painful toil. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So that's pain, right? That's a bad thing. And if ever you guys are involved in gardening, you know that uh, you can't simply let, let's say, plumeria, you know, a tree. I've been growing plumerias because David has been so kind. He gives me some of his cuttings and then now we're growing them. You know, you you can't just simply let it go and then it just grows in this beautiful tree. You actually need to tend to it. And you've got to weed it. Otherwise, it's going to get choked out. And here, this is the result specifically, God says, of the fall of man. Cursed is the ground. And then, of course, it results in death. Look there, 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So just as God had promised death, 
if they disobeyed him, so he fulfills his promise. He's good on what he says. Unfortunately here, there is death looming over them. But, there is a note of hope, isn't there? In all of this judgment, there is certainly a note of hope and salvation. So you look at 21, or 20 and 21. It says there, the man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all the living. And Eve, it sounds like, as some of your footnotes may may, uh, state, it, it sounds like the Hebrew word for life giver. And so Adam would be looking, thank God, no longer at his woman as a curse, the woman who caused him to sin, but he would be looking at her as the one who would bear one day his own deliverer. And so he names her, he looks at her and calls her Eve. And then look at 21, another strong note of hope. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Right before when they had sinned, they made for themselves loincloths out of fig leaves. They're hiding themselves, but here God actually comes alongside them, even though he is the offended party, and continues to provide for them. It's a beautiful ending. Yes, there is some disappointment. Yes, there certainly is sin. There certainly is rebellion against God, but yet there's a strong note of hope. And that brings us to 22 to 24 as we finish off here. Just simply walking through the text. This here, 22 to 24, is a conclusion to chapters 2 and 3. Keep in mind, chapter 2 began in a very different place. God had created Adam and Eve. He had provided for them, given them everything they could ever want. All of the trees. They had given them commands in which they were to live and to play. And they know their boundaries. And they were supposed to follow God and image God to the world. Being in perfect united relationship with him but here it ends on a very different note then the lord god said behold the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the lord god sent him out from the garden of eden to work the ground from which he was taken he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you notice out there the tree that turns every which way? It's supposed to be a reminder, isn't it? After after Adam and Eve have been banished from the garden, there is no angle in which they can get to the tree on their own strength. If they are to be in perfect fellowship with God, which is what the actual, the literal tree, it was a real tree, what it resembles, it symbolizes something so much greater than a mere physical thing that you eat. It symbolizes being with the presence of God. And this flaming sword that turns every which way says to us, if we are ever going to get back into fellowship with God, it is going to be because of God's doing and not our own. The tree of life shows up in Revelation. And it's fascinating there to recognize who grants us access to it. The tree of life meaning salvation. Revelation 2 verse 7 says to the one who conquers, that is the one who remains faithful, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Another verse, Revelation 22 verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. Now those would be the robes washed in Christ's blood so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. 
So just as this first man points us to the God-man of Christ, so even this tree points us to salvation in Jesus Christ. It is he that grants permission to us to eat of it, symbolizing fellowship with God. And there is a strong hope with Christ once again, right? To conclude here, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This leaves us glorying in what has already taken place. And it was to leave Adam and Eve looking forward in what would take place when the Satan crusher would come, born of a fallen woman, even though he would have no sin, and he would be the God-man who undoes everything that Adam did. Where Adam sinned and so brought the earth to produce thorns and thistles, making work hard, so Christ renews everything. Where Adam and Eve turned on one another, straining their relationship because of sin, so Christ brings forgiveness and restoration to previously hostile relationships, enabling us to forgive. Where Adam and Eve sinned against their God, earning for themselves death and judgment and being cast off from the presence of God, Jesus Christ comes down to restore man to God through his death on the cross. The question is, do you, what is it that you glory in here? And are you hiding your own sins from your very own creator, sustainer, and provider? God calls us, offering us hope to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge as we look so clearly and see what the result of laboring in our own effort brings us. Father, we turn to Jesus Christ, acknowledging our end and acknowledging your great strength, your great power as you were the one to crush the devil and defeat sin and defeat death all on, in the cross and in the resurrection. So, Lord Jesus Christ, we look back to, to what you have done and to who you are presently. And we pray that you would give us a great confidence and a strong hope, knowing that you can do what we cannot. Knowing that you lived the perfect life that we did not. And that you died the death that we deserved. And you were raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And we know, Lord, in our own strength, we simply just lay in the grave. So, Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would cause our hearts to delight and to glory in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the serpent crusher, born of a woman who undoes what Adam did. In your name we pray. Amen.